0: Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, David Jennings, who is the author of Systemology and Authority Content. He's the host of Business Systems Simplified podcast, and he has uh, owned, run, and sold three businesses himself. David, absolute joy to have you here today. Would you mind giving the audience 90 seconds on your background and how you got to where you are?
1: Yes. Uh, As you said, I have uh, owned three companies that I've started from scratch, systemized, Hired CEOs to run them, stepped out and then sold them. So I've taken businesses through that journey and I've just got obsessed now with that transition from the business owner working in the business to stepping out, replacing themselves, removing key person dependency and building a business that works without them, which then ultimately makes it saleable. And I've just realised I feel like it's one of the most least well-addressed areas of business. So I've doubled down on that, developed systemology, which is the system for systemizing business. The inspiration came after working with uh, Michael Gerber, and uh, he's the author of The E-Myth. I'm sure a lot of your audience know that, that name for sure and uh, he really set like almost like a mind virus go off in my brain uh, when, when working with him. He's just great at dropping those epic ideas in your lap, and then it's just got me so focused on solving this problem that is very poorly addressed. I feel like as well, the e builds the case for business systems, but... What do you do? How do you do it? Where do you get started? I feel like that's where most business owners get stuck. They're not systems thinkers. They just put it off and they've got all these myths and misconceptions around what business systemization means.
0: Well, certainly for the first 17 years of my career, I know I pushed back against systems because I thought they stifled my creativity. And what I've realized in my middle years and dotage is that systems set you free. They enable you to be as creative as you like as long as you work within those systems. And it's the constraint that's incredibly empowering because you don't get distracted. Now, certainly a lot of my audience is made up of salespeople or sales leaders. And salespeople are notoriously piss poor at uh, organization and uh, systematization. So what are the four most common questions you get asked right at the outset of an engagement uh, with somebody when they're bringing you in to talk about systematizing their business?
1: Yeah. One that always pops up is where do I get started? That's the biggest one. And how can I make this process easy? Because a lot of people, they just get caught up uh, and create these challenges for themselves and and problems out of nothing uh, around why they can't do it. You know, they think, oh, even if I create systems, my team won't follow them. They think they're going to need hundreds of systems. They think they need to systemize like McDonald's. So it's all around how do we break down some of those misconceptions? That would be probably another common question that pops up. Oftentimes the other big one is, What is the benefit for systems and why should I think about doing it right now? Because everybody goes, they're important, but they're never urgent. So that's a big thing. And you mentioned that just prior to us recording around, you know, how do you build the case for that? What are the numbers? How can you go to someone and say, by not systemizing, it is costing you this amount of money on your bottom line? So they're, they're probably some of the more common questions I get.
0: So where are the areas that you typically see that businesses need to systematize first?
1: Yeah. So the first one that I say, because there's hundreds of systems you could be creating, we need to think the 80-20. How do we identify the 20% that delivers the 80% of the result? Typically speaking, I'll say we need to make sure that the business can make money consistently without any dependency on anyone. So no key person dependency, whether that be the business owner, whether it's a star salesperson, whether it's the delivery team, you just want to make sure that we have all of the systems required to capture your target audience's attention, to sell them, to onboard them, to take their money, to deliver the product or service, and then to get them to come back. That's where I'd start. We call that journey the critical client flow and we map that first and that's the first bit because once we do that, we can actually scale making money within the business and we open up capacity, uh, which then makes it much easier to scale, obviously. So that's probably where we get started.
0: I'm also a huge fan of Mike Michalowicz uh, who came up with Profit First, but he has a model called the 4Ds which is do, delegate, decide, and design. And what I see most business owners and most leaders involved in is the doing instead of the design. And what you really seem to be focusing on is that design element uh, in order that decisions can be moved down the chain of command and uh, the responsibility for making decisions and for taking action can be delegated. When business owners first implement and they get past that CCF, that initial stage, what are the typical payoffs that they experience immediately?
1: Yeah, definitely it frees up time for the business owner. That's probably the biggest one, which then allows the business owner to do their most important work. Business owners are fantastic at solving problems. And oftentimes they'll start a business from scratch. They'll solve a bunch of problems. They'll grow it to a certain size. Then they get stuck and then they start solving the same problem over and over again. Different problems pop up, but it's actually the same problem because it's just with different clients. And then they're the one that keeps getting pulled into it. They, they train their staff whenever there's a problem, come to me. They train their clients Whenever there's a problem, come to me. And then they get trapped. Whereas because the business owner is great at solving problems, we want them solving problems once, high-quality problems, and we want to capture the way that that is solved. And then that becomes our new standard, the way that we do things, and then you have other team members then start to all come up to that level and solve the problem the same way. So you've touched on a couple of really important um, uh, points here. The first one
0: is they become a bottleneck. And if they're a bottleneck, they're a liability because if they get clipped by the number 73 bus, then things start falling apart. Next, they create a condition of learned helplessness, both from customers and from uh, their team, which means that they not only are a bottleneck, but they get run ragged and they suffer from upward delegation. And we see this all the time in organizations because um, the owner cannot let go. Now, in terms of trying to get this concept sold to the business owner, how do you make sure you get that ego out of the way long enough so that not only can you see this through to the full execution, but they don't then find a way of coming back and sabotaging the process?
1: So there's a few ways that we do it. Firstly, they're already sold on the idea of systems. I haven't had a discussion with a business owner where they've said, oh yeah, systems, they're not important. I I don't need systems in my business. Everybody seems to agree that systems and process are important. It's just, as I said, never, ever urgent. So then what I try and do is I narrow in on what the misconceptions are or bust some of their beliefs. So they sit there and they rethink systems you know, they may have jumped to the conclusion, like you said, that you took the flip side and you said systems set you free. Whereas what most believe is that systems reduce creativity; they turn your team into robots, and they just get them following these processes. But if I can show them that that is a false belief, and we can break it, then they realise, well, hang on, there might be a bunch of these other concept, you know, misconceptions. So to collapse that belief that you were talking about. One thing I, I suggest, I, I often use the example of like a, a travel checklist. If you're about to go on a holiday, how do most people think about packing for going on holiday. They go, oh, what do I bring? Oh, I need to bring my toothbrush and my shorts and my, what else do I need? Oh, I need to make sure that I bring socks and thongs and oh, did I forget? Oh, I need to remember my sunglasses. And they just, oh, what else did I re- forget? Or what else do I need to remember? And that's their process of packing. And what happens is they then get consumed with thinking, what do I need to take packing? And then they get to the airport and they're still thinking, what do I need to take? And they're not enjoying the moment. Whereas compare that to someone who might just have a Checklist of here are the 10 things that I need to bring for packing. They they run through that checklist and then the brain is free. They, do, they don't have to think about worrying what they've packed and what they've not. They can start thinking about and planning their holiday and enjoying that experience. And it's the same in business. There are certain things in business that need to happen. You have to invoices a certain way. You have to onboard clients maybe a certain way or get them into the system. There are certain, just the mechanics of business. And if you can take that out so it happens automatically, that then creates space. And then that space is actually where all the magic happens because that's when you get the creativity and the thought I remember one of the businesses we built up and systemized, the one that gave me one of the biggest breakthroughs was a video production business that we owned. Now, video people are incredibly creative. Try and create a system and a process for someone who is shooting and editing video. It's, it's like trying to herd cats. It's incredibly challenging. But what I learned is you, you don't want to go down with a creative where it's super micro every step of the creative what you do is you, you're setting the boundaries. It's like you're defining the perimeter of, okay, well, this is how you set up the project. Here's the space in which you've got. Here's how you ingest all of the footage. Here's, you know, the round of changes that the client's going to get. And you make some of these key decisions up front. So when they do finally sit down to be creative, they can be incredibly creative. And that's just one of the many myths that business owners carry. So usually it's, I try and collapse a few of those beliefs and then the business owner goes, okay, well, maybe I've been thinking about systems the wrong way and um, I'd let the business owner know just because you're not a systems person because you're a big picture creative doesn't mean you can't own a systems-centred business. You as the business owner are probably the worst person in the business to be creating the systems.
0: (laughs) So um, first of all, I need to do a bit of translation Thongs in Australian mean flip-flops. So if any of you (laughs) are imagining me in a thong, I'm sorry about that. Okay, the next thing. If we look at what systems really allow a business to do, if you're looking at the cold hard metrics, it allows you to push uh, high value activities down the chain of command. So lower skilled people are able to do those tasks, which means that you get more value out of them and it frees the higher up People higher up in the chain of command to do even higher value activity. So the creative side, the design piece, strategy, planning, recruitment and hiring, onboarding, coaching. One of the things that systems allow people to do in management is free up time for coaching, which is utterly essential. Having interviewed dozens of senior sales leaders of really successful hyper-growth technology companies, that are under control rather than uncontrolled growth uh, that results in them crashing and burning, every one of them spends 30 to 50% of their time coaching their direct reports, who then in turn coach their direct reports and so forth. It also frees up a lot of opportunities so that people can learn to do other people's jobs. So in a hotel, Shane, that I was working with, what we ended up doing was videoing people doing certain processes so that someone from reception could then go on to the inbound inquiry line and do the job in terms of being able to provide cover. And as a result of that, they didn't have to bring in temps or they didn't create a backlog and so customers were responded to more quickly. And these translate into hard metrics. They translate into higher productivity, higher profitability per employee, and also a far more engaged workforce. Because nowadays, certainly, people don't expect to just turn up and be a drone. They expect to be exposed to different experiences and be able to grow in their role. Sorry, David, go on.
1: I was going to say one thing you mentioned there, and before we started, you had said, look, I want this to be incredibly actionable. I want someone to hear this, to get the idea that they can implement. And you mentioned something there that I always talk about, this idea that systems creation is a two-person job. Imagine the person who has the knowledge, that knowledgeable person, and then imagine a separate person who is the document creator or the systems creator. If you do that, what you do is, and you separate the two You make it infinitely easier to capture systems and processes because most people don't get really excited by the idea of detailing out how they do something and writing systems and processes, but they're fine if you just record them doing the thing, whether it's on your iPhone, whether it's on Zoom, whether it's on Loom, no matter what it is, just figure out a way to record the knowledgeable person doing the thing and then give it to someone else to do the documentation let them have first go at it. And everybody loves to edit. No one likes to write from a blank page. So if you go back to the knowledgeable person with draft one of their system written down, they'll happily look at it and go, oh, you missed step three, four, and five. And I want to add this extra bullet in here. And it makes the whole process infinitely easier. And the the key with systems, don't try and reinvent the wheel or Create something brand new. Just figure out what is currently working in your business, best practice, and can and clone that, and then get everybody delivering to that standard. You don't need to have the system perfect, or it doesn't need to be the best sales process. Just find the best sales process in your organization capture that, get everybody to operate at that, and then you'll actually get significant wins by just bringing everybody up to that standard and going for consistency.
0: Well, again, I I think it's important to understand that there is a journey or a map, a framework that you follow. Would you mind just outlining a summary of the seven steps in systemology?
1: Well, the first step we talked about a little bit earlier, the critical client flow, it's defined. We just need to at first identify the 10 to 15 systems that are central to the delivery of your core product or service. So we just identify it first, very high level. Then step number two is a sign. We just want to think about who in the team has this knowledge And preferably where we can, we avoid the business owner. There will be times where we can't, but if, you know, we can, we we try and go of those 10 to 15 systems, who knows how to do that thing? Oh, who knows how to sell, who knows how to onboard and you get that listed out. Then um, we get to the extract phase and then we apply that other secret we talked about. So step number three is extract and understanding that it's a two-person job and we have a thing called a system for creating systems. So we want to um, have a way in which things are documented so you get consistency. So that's the extract phase. Then we move to the organize phase. That's really just about having a central location where all of the knowledge is stored so everybody knows where to go and it's not on desktops, it's not in Google Drive or Dropbox, it's one location and also including in some form of project management, a way to assign who does what by when. Because if if you have clear accountability and visibility and when you're assigning a task, if you link to the system that explains how to do that task to a certain standard, then there's no confusion. You're, you're basically saying this is the way I want it done. Don't tick it off until you've done it to that standard. Or if you do, well, that's another discussion for management. So that next, that, that stage for organize, then we move to stage number five, which is integrate. And we talk about. How do we make sure that we're getting complete buy in from the team and understanding where resistance comes from? And when I know you've got a a good friend you were telling me about who's excellent with his change management stuff, this is about change management because we want to introduce it, we want the team to buy in. Most of your resistance is going to come from your existing team, all future hires. And when they come on board, they'll go through your recruitment process and your onboarding process. So they'll reach a point where they just, that's all they ever know. So there is no resistance there. It's only your existing stuff. And that's another reason why a lot of people give up because all of the resistance to this change happens up front. They try it, it doesn't work and they retreat. They don't realize they just go a little bit further and all the magic happens on the other side of that.
0: It's and the so last the- three feet that you're digging before you hit the, uh, the gold.
1: And systems is the worst for that because it um, all of the system's benefits compound on top of each other. It's not like running an AdWords campaign where you turn on the ads and straight away you get immediate feedback. The systems layer on themselves over time. And then the final uh, stage, couple of stages, we've got scale. So you asked earlier, okay, well, where do you start? What systems do you work on first? Once we get the critical client flow down, then we start to think about, What are the other mission critical systems in the other departments that would be required for scale? So, that is uh, recruitment. How do we find great staff and onboard great staff and keep great staff? How systems around the finance and also the management. So, that's what that scale stage is about. And then the last one, the stage number seven, is the optimize. And this is this idea that you actually leave optimization to last. We are wanting to just get a baseline down, a minimum set of systems that everybody follows consistency. So when you put your metrics and your dashboards over, now those numbers mean something because everybody's doing things a certain way, which means you can pinpoint problems and then go to work on the systems that will fix that problem. But that, that happens down the track and we, we also want to remove that whole, you know, people get frozen by this idea of, oh, I have to have my systems just right. You know, they, they hear about systemization and they think McDonald's, oh, I need to systemize like McDonald's. But McDonald's has been systemizing for 60 years and mm-hmm. you're trying to systemize like they are today. You want to systemize how McDonald's got started 60 years ago. Don't look at McDonald's today.
0: And the key point here is this is a constant work in progress. You are never done. And you need to keep revisiting your systems to see that they're still fit
1: for purpose probably two, three, four times a year. Fair? And and even... To build on that it's it's a change in culture where you're actually you mentioned it earlier about you want your team members to think about how do we take some of our task and move it down the chain to lower cost labor so for them to move up they are actually looking to replace themselves and parts of their job and then that enables them to move up so it's well, the way that we look at it we we when you get to the optimized stage we actually look for problems when they pop up in the business. We add them to a problems list and you actually try and review that, whether that's weekly or fortnightly and you address them straight away. So it is it is a constant, never-ending improvement because the whole goal is to get the business owner and all of the team solving higher quality problems. That's, that's really what we're trying to do, moving everybody up. Some people will just get to an area and they'll go, I'm comfortable here. But there'll be certain team members that want to and thrive solving higher quality problems. And and we want to give them the opportunity to do their best work.
0: That's really interesting. Does that mean that it changes your focus in terms of the kind of people that you bring into the business? Because experience has taught me that business owners tend to recruit in their own image only weaker. Certainly sales managers do that. And often what you end up with is a very skewed team. So, uh, you know, they'll be all technicians or they'll all be creatives. And you need to have that diversity, that range, that, those different perspectives. Um, so do you find that when you
1: systematize, the recruitment culture changes? Yeah, that once you get to the end of systemology really is to solve a very specific problem for a very specific person in time. Once we get to the end and we're at stage number seven, all we've done is we've created a baseline. We've become aware of the systems that exist in the business. And then when you start to go to work on those systems, that's actually when you bring in the consultant, the expert, or the top gun new team member that you hire to solve a specific problem. And you come in and go, I need you, you know, they come in and and I need you to redefine my sales system. Here's what we're doing. Here's our numbers. Here's where it's not working. It's falling off here and here. And then your expert or your new team member has seen that problem solved before in another business. So they take their systems and effectively they'll come in and deploy it in. But what we want to do is make sure that that is captured and goes into our uh, repository of systems and processes in the business because that's where the value is so it's a game of building the systems database that solve problems and then we start to refine that that later stage that we're talking about like i'm great for the first seven steps but then that's when i kind of hook in with people like you where i'd go right marcus we need to now work on this chunk and and Uh, you're the expert at your piece I, i i'm going to
0: challenge you not because i disagree Um, But I think that, no, let me rephrase that. I believe that many of the answers already exist within the business. And there is a tendency to bring in externals when you should be speaking to your people. And one of the systems I would advocate is regular listening to your people, regular listening to your customers. And I see this all the time because the real value is in the small data. It's in the small data that your customers are having conversations with your salespeople, your customer service people, with your engineers. And that information is not being captured. And the other side is employee conversations. These are spontaneous, unfiltered, unbiased conversations that are rich in insightful data. And before you bring some sad old bugger like me in, Speak to your people, but have a system in order to do that. I'm delighted that people don't because it means that I can make a living. But the reality is that if you systematize that process and you actually pay attention to what your customers and your employees are telling you. You will find the answers to many of these problems. So it's, you bring in the external to solve the problems you absolutely cannot because it's something that's um, so out of your uh, scope and capability. But the people who are at the sharp end, dealing with the customers, dealing with the customer problems, they actually have a huge wealth of information. But most managers and most leaders are deaf to that stuff because they just ignore it, they take it for granted, and they act as if this is the way we do business. Well, it doesn't have to be. My favorite poster in my office is a picture of the Pamplona bull run, and it runs tradition. Just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. And it depresses me, if I'm being perfectly honest, that uh, so much opportunity is wasted because people don't listen. And I, I would countenance all of you to develop listening systems, regular opportunities to speak to and encourage people by offering, you, certainly your staff, the three Ps, potency, protection, and permission. Okay, So they have the right to say their, uh, speak their mind. They have potency, which means that their voice will not only be heard, but it will be listened to, and you will take action. And protection, that they're not going to be punished for telling you the truth. And I believe that's one of the fundamental improvements that every business can instigate, but it requires the owner and the managers to leave their ego behind. And that's a hard one.
1: That one for me, when I stepped out and we hired the CEO, there are a couple of occasions that had popped up for me that made me realise when I, I used to think I was a good people manager until I hired a good people manager. And then I realised how poor I actually was. Business owners, they think that they are the best, but letting go and putting someone else in charge is the only way that you can then step out of the operations. There was uh, one time Melissa, so she's the yin to my yang, she stepped in um, and as the business owner, I always thought whatever I was working on was most important. So I'd go to a team member and I say, look, I've got a presentation next week. I need you to do this slide deck um, and it's top priority. And I did that a few times and Melissa came to me and she said, look, you do that and you throw out our timelines, it's throwing you know, our delivery off for clients because you're just kind of jumping the gun because you think like you're the most important. And she said, well, I want to come up with a new way where you just route it through me and I can get it in and assign it appropriately. Can we make sure we manage the workload? Now, being the business owner, I followed it once or twice and then I started short-cutting it again and I would go <laughs> direct to the team member. Melissa ended up posting in our Asana channel, which is our project management, a bulletin for the entire team. She said, next time, Dave comes to you with an urgent inquiry and it doesn't go through the appropriate way because we've got a system for the way that works assigned, I want you to ignore it. Now, as the business owner, to be told by a team member or or my CEO to ignore me, like I was incredibly embarrassed. And uh, for a little while there, I kind of just kept that story just between me and the team. But then I realized how helpful and insightful it was because I realized I was undermining Melissa's great work. If I wanted her to step in and run the show and replace me and have the buck stop with her, if she had a way of doing things, if I'm in her house, I need to follow her rules. And she said, Dave, I don't care what you do with your personal assistant. If you've got a way that, you know, being a big picture visionary, I throw ideas left, right and centre. I'm, you know, sending a million emails, at, you know, late at night when it just pops into my mind. But I just, I work that way with my executive assistant. But when I'm working with the rest of the team, she's created rules and a way of doing things. So it was, Sorry. Sorry. That, was, that was huge for me. So you learnt humility, which is a good thing.
0: And what I've extrapolated from that as well is that what Melissa was doing was what she should have been doing, which is what all great managers do. They hire the best people. They get the best out of them. They make sure they have the tools, systems, and resources they need to do their best work every day. They clear the roadblocks, and they protect their people from acts of idiocy from above, and they manage inclusively. So everybody has a voice. And and again, by doing that, what she also implemented or reinforced was that you have policy to tell people what not to do and what you've just described is creating a culture which is what to do the way this is the way we do things around here versus seeing the systems and the boundaries as being micromanaging or getting in the way of their creativity it allows them to do their work did you know that every interruption? typically takes about seven minutes to recover your concentration. Now, I have heard
1: that. And it's funny, you hear it and you don't intellectually, you go, oh, yeah, but I can probably get back into it quicker than that. Okay. <laughs> Let me just do pain by numbers with
0: you. Um, <laughs> on average, how many interruptions in a day did you create?
1: Yeah, wow. When I was in the office as well, it was even worse because... Okay. We're in the same space. So I would average, pro- average day, how many times did you interrupt people? I would say at least
0: 10 to 15 times a day. And how long did those interruptions take to engage in the, act, uh, the conversation and for them to then do the work?
1: I would say typically, you know, could vary anywhere from sort of 10 minutes to, you know, probably half an hour at most, but probably. What, not what do that. you
0: reckon would be a low conservative average?
1: Let's say 10 minutes.
0: On average, you were doing 170 minutes worth of interruption plus recovery time. Yep. Yep. Per day. And then 170 times 20, that's per month, 3,400 times 12. Okay. So that's 40,800 man minutes a year. And what was your average salary? Or hourly rate? Yeah, look, probably around 25, 30 bucks an hour. Let's say 30 bucks an hour. Okay, well, that's 680 man days, by the way. <laughs> okay, uh, sorry, man hours. So it was about $30 an hour times 30. Your interruptions alone cost the business $20,400 every year. How many years were you doing that for?
1: I was in the business for 10 years until she kicked you okay. in.
0: So that's $204,000. If you had $204,000 in your back pocket today, how would you invest that?
1: Well, we could probably in Bitcoin. There you go. <laughs> okay.
0: well, let, let me ask you this. For every dollar you invest in your business, how many dollars do you expect to get back? Our general number, I would say th- at least three. So in effect, what that cost you is $204,000 in actual cash. And on top of that, um, at least another 612000 in opportunity cost. It if is that a isn't a good reasons. enough reason, <laughs> to get out of your own way. I mean, I, One of the rules that we teach is if your foot's hurting, you're probably standing on your own toe. OK, <laughs> so if, if you're in business and you, are, you think that it's just a minute, OK, those minutes add up. And when you think about the culture where people then see the boss doing this, and so they all interrupt as well, and they don't understand the boundaries of how to say no. Again, another very useful skill all managers must learn to do is to say no gracefully. Uh, one of the things I teach my clients to do is say, Dave, look, this sounds really important. Unfortunately, I can't deal with this now, and it does need my undivided attention. Look at your watch or your clock and say, look, I've got about six 17 minutes at three o'clock this afternoon. Between now and then, can you put all of this on one side of a piece of paper, identify what the problem is, and come to me with the one question that you want me to help you solve? But what I want you to have done is three ways to try and fix this yourself before you do. Now, miraculously, 95 98% of those problems go away because they fix them themselves. It's a system. But the the problem is that most managers don't know how to prevent that upward delegation. And most owners and leaders don't know how to stop themselves from doing it. It's a terrifying Mm. waste. I mean, just think about how much more productive that $816,000 could have been used.
1: The other thing I find as well, I'm... I found that I was a bit of a people pleaser Ah. when it came to clients and staff. So they would come to me and I would feel good about solving the problem for the team member. Melissa had a little trick and a tweak. She was fantastic because she came and she taught me these few things that just changed the way that I looked at things, which still satisfied my urge to help. But what we would do, the first thing the team member and I would do is we would then go to... Where all of our systems and processes are stored, and together we would try and find the system that answered their problem. So what that ended up doing, at least then, it started to train them. Well, Dave's only going to ask, get me to go here first anyway. So then they started to doing it, and then the questions started to reduce. And then when they did come to me, it was only when something wasn't there, and then we knew that was a chance to build a system or add to something we've already got. So how many interruptions a day
0: did you receive?
1: prior to doing that, from your team coming to you and saying, Dave, help me. That would oftentimes be significantly more. Like it would be double probably, I would imagine, at least what we just did the maths for.
0: Right, okay. So 20 interruptions at 10 minutes a pop, that's 200 man minutes, plus 20 times 7, that's 240. So now you're talking about 470 minutes of your time lost on doing other people's work that you were paying them for. So you're paying twice. What was the quota that the company was meant to be carrying that you were ultimately accountable for?
1: We didn't even have that. I just got, I was just working. That, Like, I mean, that's, yeah. Fair enough. Um, But you you get my
0: gist. Now, uh, when you think about that, that's 470 minutes that you were doing other people's work during your pay time hours. And if you want to recover, time, the first thing you have to do is learn how to say no to interruptions and teach people that they can't interrupt. They have to be self-sufficient. And they have to think about three ways to solve a problem first. There's no shame in asking for help if you've done that. But what happens is you create learned helplessness. And learned helplessness invariably means upward delegation and the manager being run
1: ragged. So you are probably working, what, 12, 14, 16-hour days? And most of the time I felt like I was keeping everybody else busy. And then it's only in the evenings and weekends then when I was really getting my own focus time to do my work because I was always keeping everybody else busy. And then that was another big insight we had um, where we shifted from being task-driven and assigning out tasks and started to think about roles. And then someone you started to own a department or own a particular section of a department and that again was another one of those change moments for us fabulous okay sorry that we went down this rabbit hole but it,
0: it reinforces the critical need for systems and and um, to give you structure because when you do that you liberate people to do their job well and rate elevate the standard that's expected not only of them but also of you as a leader So you can always focus on de-skilling and pushing higher value activity to lower cost resources and free up time so that you can improve your strategy, your planning, and your hiring and your people development. I know that you've also written about how to systematize your content production. And I'd like to explore that before we wrap up. So tell me this how do you systematize uh, your content? Because in in this day and age, if you are not a content, uh, a subject matter expert and an authority in your field, certainly in sales, I think you're at
1: a massive disadvantage. Do you mind if you you talk us through that? The short version of that system, I, I like to do activities once that then can be repurposed and used in multiple different ways. So, Anything where I can I do one thing, but it ticks a bunch of different boxes, that always moves up the priority for me. Now, this is pre-COVID when we were running some live events and things like that. But what I would do is typically I'd run one or two at most live workshops a year. And all I would do is I would get uh, clients or prospects to come in and, and I would present topics that were interesting to them. We would record that. And then that content became the seed for everything else. And it was all systemized after that. So the reason I love doing a live event is because I knew we were going to have 20 or 30 people in a room on a certain day. And it forced me to show up and be there and have all the content done. It was that positive constraint. I had the deadline. So I had the deadline. It had to happen. We would record it, but that one day could then be chopped up into Usually we'd get between, you know, 500 and 700 bits of content, whether that's little videos, we would take that and repurpose it and put it onto the podcast. They'd end up being on YouTube. We'd get them transcribed. We'd then turn those transcriptions into little articles that would appear on the site. Um, we would then take little grabs and they'd be used on Twitter. Basically, we had a system where we'd start off, we'd record it. I'd get someone to watch the videos and time code it. So they'd pick out all of the bits where something interesting was said. Then it would go to an editor. The editor would then chop those pieces out. Then we'd get, as I said, the audio, the transcription, and the video. And then the transcription would go to a writer. The video would go to the person who would then share it around on of our social media. And then the audio would appear on the podcast. So it would, It ended up being one activity for me that would then give us six months, nine months worth of content. So we'd only have to run one or two events a year. And then I wouldn't have to think about content because where a lot of people go wrong with content is they try and outsource it or they give it to someone and it's one step removed from the source. So the message is watered down and it doesn't have the potency and it is the first, it's not your voice. And it's the first thing that the customer or the prospect rather hears. So it's important that it's nailed because that's the bait that catches the fish that brings them into your world. And then you can start your process. So systemizing that is key.
0: We call it skinning the cat. There's more than one way, and you can use video content to create audio content, transcripts, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn. You can turn those into articles. You can use those in order to fuel a lead funnel. You can use them as giveaways. You can use them as rewards for loyal customers. There's any number of different ways that you can skin the cat. And if you are smart about your content production and you're systematic about how you repurpose it, then you can derive an enormous amount of value for very little, comparatively little work. So Dave, we're coming to the top of the hour, unfortunately, which is a real
1: shame because I could talk to you for hours. Tell me this, what, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? At the moment, with Systemology, the book has just come out on Amazon and I'm getting fantastic feedback and everybody goes, wow, you're really onto something because it um, it hasn't been spoken to in this particular way. So my challenge is, well, I want to get it out to the masses, as many people as I can. I also have to be aware of, if they find out about the book, the, the backend services um, also need to be there and very scalable and we need to have capacity. So the next piece we're working on is building out a certification program to try and train up systemologists to then work with business owners. So that's, I'm just, I've not done certification before. So I'm, I'm looking to things like, you know, EOS um, and the way that they do the EOS implementers. And um, I know StoryBrand is doing some interesting stuff with Donald Miller. Uh, and duct tape mon- uh, marketing, uh, John Jance has done some stuff. So I'm just at the moment seeing how certifications work and then seeing if that's the right fit for us. So that's probably where I'm exploring to see if that's the best way for us to get our message out. Cause the message is solid. It's just, I have to think of what's, you know, h- how do we help the most people at scale that isn't me? Cause I did the one-on-one stuff, but just tapped out incredibly quickly with, with how much capacity. In your plan, your written plan for this, um, have you identified where you want to end up and are you working backwards from there? So we use Cameron Herald's Vivid Vision idea. So I've I've written out a three-year plan. I I jump into the future and I thought about what does the business look like? What's the size of the team? What are the products and services that we're offering? What does the community look like? And I I put that into about a six-page document then okay. I went to a someone who came onto our team is ex-profit first. You mentioned um, Mike Michalowicz's work. And what he did then is he worked with me using a thing called Live Plan. And then we tried to then get it all into Live Plan to then start to forecast out, well, what does that three years look like? At what point are we recruiting new people? At what volumes do we need to be selling these products to then make sure that that then... Is going to be able to fund that. So we're, this business—that's the bit that actually was missing in all of my previous three businesses. We we never did that before. Whereas this is the first one where that's the first thing that we've done. We've got a clear, vivid vision. We then built out a solid plan, and now we're executing on the plan. And you know, taking some ideas from um, yeah EOS and you know the way that they do their meeting rhythms and things like that. So we're on the path. But it's, yeah, definitely a learning process. It's interesting.
0: We we have a system called um, Leadership for Organizational Excellence. And the framework for that is that you start with the vision and the mission and the plan. Then you look at the roles that you're going to need in six months, a year, two years, three years down the road. And you design those role functions. And then you see who you have on your team at the moment who can grow into them so that you can create a runway Uh, for them to develop. If you don't have the people, then you need to start looking to recruit and you build your bench well in advance. But what you also do is you identify the trigger points in the budget so that you know when you can afford to hire these people and build the onboarding process for them. And that first 120 days is where you set them up to succeed or fail. So what do they need to know? By when do they need to know it? where can they find the information, how are they going to be measured, to what standard and what are the red flags, and the accountabilities and consequences, so that you've got all of that pre-prepared. So when you switch it on, you've already got this bench of five, six, seven candidates lined up who are suitable for the role, want it, and are willing to take the role if their circumstances allow. And then- once you've done that, you look at your processes, and this is really where, obviously, you guys are very strong, and then you look at how you're going to measure the performance, and you focus on the leading, not the lagging indicators, which, again, I think um, is critical when you're developing your systems, uh, because so many organizations measure lag indicators, which are bloody useless. There's nothing you can do once the things happen, you know, revenue, profit, um, you know, all of that stuff. It's already happened. You've already hit the iceberg, and you're two thirds of the way down to the bottom of the Atlantic by the time you realize. So again, focus on leading indicators, and then it's an iterative process to make sure that you're going back, cycling back over your plan to make sure that it's still relevant and still current, because if you scale quickly, often you'll get ahead of where you expect it to be. and what you don't want to do is allow the plan to start to fall behind where you're headed. So every six months minimum, but probably every quarter, you need to be revisiting where you are to make sure that you stay ahead and your plan is always still fit for purpose two, three, four years down the road. Really fascinating. Thank you. Tell me this. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back in time, and adv- and it doesn't have to be about regrets, but if you could go back and advise the idiot Dave age 23, what first bit of advice would you whisper in his ear?
1: Actually, I would say buy Amazon, buy Google and (laughs) buy Tesla stock. No, um, but uh, but seriously, uh, from a business perspective, I would say the sooner you can build a business where you don't deliver the thing, the sooner you will build a a huge business because everybody gets stuck when they know how to do the thing, when they cut the hair, when they mow the lawn, when they do whatever it is, building a business... From day dot where you're not doing it, that is a bit of a, a, a hack to be able to actually focus on building business, not delivering the work. You don't
0: have a business if you are part of that process. Uh, what you have, you either bought a job or you're building a practice. That's not a business. Okay, and um, so what are you watching, reading, listening to that you think other people should really pay attention to because it's great material?
1: listening to, I, I quite enjoy, there's a guy, uh, Jason Calacanis, who's got um, uh, This Week in Startup, I think it is, just a podcast. I, f- I find that interesting, mainly just because he talks to a bunch of different startup founders and with some big ideas. Yeah, there's lessons to be learned in that. Um, as far as, you know, what I'm, I'm reading, I'm just revisiting certain works. Like I really like Gino Wickman stuff, Traction. That connects incredibly well with me and my system's mind. That would probably be another one worth looking at. They're probably the the two main things that jump out at me at the moment. I tend to go for what problems do I have right now? And then I try and consume the content that addresses that problem of whatever I've got right now. That seems to be the way that I learn. Fabulous. Well,
0: it's 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 a good idea to stay uh, on top of your problems and preferably even get ahead of them. So this has been wonderful. Dave Jennings, thank you so much.
1: Pleasure. Thank you for having me. How can people get hold of you? Best way is to just head to systemology.com and they can go forward slash book, find out a little bit more about the book, or head over to Amazon and, and get a copy of Systemology and also on the website, there's links to my social media. And if you want to shoot me an email, more than happy to help them. My area of genius or expertise is that systems thing and that idea of removing key person dependency. That's where I do my best work.
0: Fabulous. Dave,
1: thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from
0: the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please like, comment, and share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch, either because uh, you've got questions or comments, or you think you'd be a good guest, or you know someone who would be, then please email me at marcuscalkey at me.com, or my new email address, marcus at last, laughs last, com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.